Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Both personally and professionally, Saeed Zaman is probably one of the most globalized individuals you'll ever meet. Born in Pakistan, his family moved to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia when he was just four. When it came time for university, Saeed applied to a number of schools in the United States, ultimately landing on Purdue University in Indiana. His media career started immediately after graduation, when he was recruited by Starcom's Chicago office. From there, his career would continue to grow. Senior-level opportunities presented themselves, taking Saeed to places such as Los Angeles, Dallas, Toronto, and Dubai. Saeed Zaman sits down to chat with us about his media career that spans multiple cities in three countries across two continents, his passion for music, and the caution he was forced to employ in a country where Western music was discouraged. Pornovelli is an award-winning, you know, global purpose communications consultancy. You know, we like to think of ourselves as a client's communication partner for the stakeholder era, you know, the era we're living in. Um, we work with our clients to uncover, you know, the rapidly changing expectations of their stakeholders and, you know, through communications, help them connect with those stakeholders in an authentic way to build a reputation that's well earned. Uh, I am VP Head of Digital Innovation and Integrated Media at Porter Novelli. Uh, so I work across all our capabilities at Porter uh, for Canadian and U.S. clients uh, on digital and traditional media, uh, whether it's paid, owned, or earn communications, uh, along with reputation crisis management strategies within the you know digital hemisphere. I am also one of the people at Port Novelli tasked with showcasing our latest and newly launched analytical and attribution tech stack, which is called Omnicom Earn ID or OEID. Uh, it's essentially our industry's first analytics platform to validate, finally validate the impact of earned media on brand reputation and sales and to further quantify the effect of influencer campaigns on business outcomes. Said, I'm very excited to have you here today. I really appreciate this. You've got one hell of a story, and thank you for letting me tell it. So let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I was born in Karachi, uh, Pakistan, uh, but I left to live in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia at the age of four uh, with my family as my dad had gotten a job there. So for 12 years, I lived and went to school there, only spending summers in Pakistan. What was life like growing up in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? It was all right. Um, You know, the best part was actually going to school, believe it or not, and having a blast with my friends. I went to the Pakistani embassy school there, so all boys school. Uh, Other than that, it was, you know, pretty restrictive and conservative in the 80s and 90s in Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you've been following the news, but now it's totally a different place. You know, if you've been, you know, reading up on all the reforms and changes that are happening there. I'm a massive racing fan and Saudi Arabia hosted the first, their very first Formula E race. uh, Yeah. yeah. They're going to have a Formula One race at the end of the season. I think it's in October or November. Yeah. Yeah. I read up on that too. Um, You know, when I was in Dubai, you know, they also have that circuit over there in Abu Dhabi. So you mentioned that you got that your family relocated from Pakistan to Saudi Arabia because your father's job took him there. Uh, was he a diplomat or was it something else that brought the family there? Basically, my dad got a job uh, 
at you know Ericsson, you know the phone company at the time. Oh yes, yeah. um, so the ones yeah. that Sony bought. They were the they're Scandinavian company, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Um, he when I was four, when I moved there, that was his job, uh, and he was a marketing manager at Ericsson in you know Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. But uh, within a couple of years of us moving there, um, he left that job and then actually went and worked for the British Embassy uh, for about twenty eight plus years. Uh, and currently, right now, he's still there. He went from the British Embassy, and now is actually working at the Canadian Embassy for the past six plus years. That's a heck of a pivot, going from say marketing for a Scandinavian mobile phone company to working working for, I mean, essentially a foreign government. Yeah, I know. And then two of them, and then the, and the kicker is that he actually has U.S. citizenship. So going from <laughs> a British Embassy working at the Canadian Embassy, but has a U.S. citizenship. So go figure. So you mentioned that the, you were born in uh, Karachi, Pakistan, and when you were four, the family relocated to Saudi Arabia because of your father's work, and that you spent your summers back in Pakistan. So apart from that, did you move around a lot? Did you stay in one place for the most part? Where else, uh, where else did things take you? I left uh, Saudi Arabia after high school. I was almost 18 and went back to Karachi to attend another university over there. But then I transferred to Purdue University in Indiana, I would say. Uh, in ni- August 1999, I'm, you know, when I was 20 and I graduated from there. Believe it or not, Drew Brees, the quarterback, was in one of my classes in the last semester and actually also had a study group with him. I had no idea who he was, like three classes in, and somebody had to actually tell me because the guy was so, like, humble and unassuming and just the nicest guy. After Purdue, I worked in Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, uh, Toronto, back to Karachi, Dubai, back to Toronto, then back to Dubai, and then finally came back to Toronto in 2011 uh, and been here since then. So wait, I want to go back to your university time in Indiana. So you were Purdue, Purdue University. You were a Boilermaker then. Like, I mean, that's yes. the mascot, yes. right? Yes, 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 that's true. Something really interesting about the American University uh, sports system, the NCAA, especially if you are, especially if you're going to school in the Midwest, because there isn't a lot of professional sports out there. Mind you, in Indiana, they've got the Pacers and they've got the Colts. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, did you find yourself jumping on that sports bandwagon with them? Like, was that like as a foreigner coming into that, were you surprised to see that sports was actually bigger than possibly the academic side of the university? So I'll be honest, I was kind of into basketball, even like living in Saudi Arabia, they would like uh, even in Pakistan, we would see like shows of like Lakers and, you know, the Chicago Bulls and all that. But I never understood American football. So when I came <laughs> and I and and everybody's like going crazy, I had no idea. I still cannot gravitate enough towards it. Like, you know, I grew up with like cricket, right? Like being from Pakistan and, you know, you know, soccer, but we call it football there. So, no, um, I was, uh, you know sent on a mission to complete my studies. And uh, I was just like head down, trying to make sure I graduate, you know, decent GPA. So no, except for Drew Brees, that brief interaction, uh, I was not really into that whole uh, football scene or, you know, the sports scene. Okay. So you name dropped cricket and I've got a bit of a fascination with cricket. So I spent some time in Europe when I was younger, specifically in Great Britain and in Scotland. And I had friends that were hugely into cricket and they broke it down into three parts for me. They said that there is, oh God, what was it? The first one is test cricket, which can go on for five days and still end yep. in a draw. One yeah. day international. And then yeah. there was 2020 cricket. And some of these yeah. guys were absolute purists and were like, stay away from 2020 cricket, even though that's where the money <laughs> was. It was shorter, faster. Yeah. 
that's where the dollars yeah. were going. So, okay, what's your opinion on that? I actually agree being like, a, I would say, a traditionalist growing up watching test cricket and one-day internationals because even in the one-day internationals, like 50 overs, right? Like each over is six balls. It goes on, like it starts in the morning and ends at night. 2020 is like fast food. Right? Like 20 overs. <laughs> that's a good way of putting get it. it done. And it's like click, easy, done. Okay, let's see. And then, you know, the one-day international, the original one happens every four years, just like soccer, right? But the T20s happen every year. And every year there's a champion. So there's not this whole like, you know, that waiting period and getting excited and who's going to qualify that being a long stretch kind of like that feeling. It's just not there with 2020. So I am with those guys for sure. So you believe you're, you believe the best sports include delayed gratification. You're waiting every two to four years. Absolutely. But tell us a little bit about your passions growing up, because even though we've just been talking about cricket and you mentioned that basketball had made like especially the nba had made its way into your childhood in saudi arabia and in pakistan music is actually your passion so take us through that a little bit yeah i started playing uh piano and keyboards around like let's say nine ten and i would listen to like cassettes and cds for hours and hours and hours uh later on i also actually managed a rock band in pakistan who were massive and won actually won the first pepsi battle of the bands um in the you know inaugural season uh, also in 2017, I released my self-produced, mostly instrumental album on this platform called Patari, which is like Pakistan's version of Spotify. So yeah, music is, is, is my thing. Like, I feel like ever since I discovered music, everything else has taken a backseat. Do you remember the first time you realized music was your passion or the first time you were introduced to it? Because I'm a big car guy and I can remember the first time I got into cars and it was when someone had given me, my father had given me my very first Hot Wheels car. And then after that, I was hooked. What about you and music? I would say when I heard Michael Jackson's Thriller at a very young age, I think it might have been either Billie Jean or Beat It. And then that stayed with me for such a long time. But the real... Uh, moment I would say that I actually gravitated towards like rock music and you know really getting into music I was actually uh, at my friend's house in the late nine, late 80s early 90s and he was one of the first his family was the first guys to have this satellite dish on top of their roof which was actually technically illegal because you're in Saudi Arabia at those times and it's beaming in all this like music channels and you know programs of all over the world and i distinctly remember uh we'd, we'd, a bunch of us friends had gone over to his house and uh their parents had put down dinner and the tv was on and mtv was on and uh, the fly the song the fly by u2 came on and i distinctly remember that guitar part that comes into the start like right that guitar riff i literally left my plate walked across to the television somebody else's house turn up the volume and i just like watched that entire video just like like what is happening so i would say that was like a moment in my life where i realized the art form and the effect that a great song you know put together in a certain way with amazing words and that video i don't know if you've seen that video for the fly from youtube it's just just like mind-blowing you bring up a good point about listening to rock music or even westernized music in Saudi Arabia, because even though things have opened up quite a bit now, they've, they've had a lot of cultural reforms. I assume back when you were there, it was very like pop culture or just the westernized culture in general, specifically music and movies was very restricted. So what you were doing was very under the radar. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
Oh no, absolutely! Like uh, I, I know families whose houses have gotten raided. So you gotta understand when they would put that satellite dish on the roof, you'd have to, everybody. Somebody would have to go outside and check if the satellite dish is in view from the road. So if somebody oh, geez, saw it, that's a good point, and, and reported it, uh, literally they would come. The you know, and they would actually knock on your door and literally tear down and break it up in front of you. Or confiscate it and take it away. So it was that. We only had two channels in Saudi Arabia when I was growing up. Channel one, channel two. Channel one was all Arabic. Channel two was all English. And when I say English, it was like they had shows from the U.S. Americana 1950s, like My Mother the Car, or like Gilligan's Island. And it, so I know a lot about old, you know, television shows. Uh, from the U.S. because you know why they would show that because at that time those were like the safe shows, right? They couldn't show like the newer shows that were you know popular in the U.S. at the time. So a lot of like I've seen Full House uh, once uh, for oh, the whole show was for ten minutes because something was not right in it. So literally in one scene somebody's on a horse, the next cut in a second they're sitting in the kitchen having dinner. I'm like, what happened in between there? It's funny that you bring this up because I kind of have an experience with that a little bit, or I had some insight from a, a Jordanian flatmate of mine years ago. So I'd mentioned that I was living in Great Britain. I was specifically in Scotland and I was going to university there. And there was one gentleman who lived across the hall from me, lovely guy. But this was at the early stages of Facebook, and he was incredibly political on Facebook. Like he oh, would yeah. put everything on Facebook. And yeah. if you just paid attention to his Facebook page, you would think that he was on he was very one-sided on a number of issues and I won't get into the, uh, to the uh, Middle East political issues. Like he'd seem very conservative with those issues and I don't want to yeah. get into it here because this isn't the space for it. But late at night, I would always hear this line come from his room and it was, Oh my God, you killed Kenny, you bastard. And, <laughs> and finally one day I pulled him aside and I said, look, I, I'm like, I don't get it. You, you speak out against American foreign policy on Facebook and here you are like of all the things I thought you'd gravitate towards from American pop South culture, Park. it's South Park. And he <laughs> yeah. sat me down and he's like, you don't get it. He's like, he's like, we like American pop culture. He's like, that's not a threat to us. That's wonderful. He's like, we yeah. live vicariously yeah. through it. He's like, it's, he's like, the problem is the American media does not separate their politics from their popular culture. And they think that we dislike everything. All we, he's yeah, like, I, he's absolutely. like, I, he's like, I disagree with their foreign policy. He's like, I hope they stay out of the Middle East. But he's like, apart from that, he's like, send me your music and send me your movies and your TV shows. And I thought that was, it was, it was quite an enlightening moment for me. You know, that is so true because, you know, a lot of the feelings are similar across, you know, most countries with, you know, predominantly Middle Eastern or, you know, uh, you know, Muslims living there that, it's not the American people or it's not the, you know, the Western civilization. Uh, I mean, come on, the Beatles, you know, uh, you know, all the great shows, the great bands, the great music, the, the really funny shows. We, you know, everybody loves all that. It's always the politicians. And I would say it's vice versa too, right? Like I've like introduced a lot of my friends to a lot of like, you know, stuff that i listen to from pakistan or india or the middle east and they love it they get into it i've got a friend who's like listening to uh, a pakistani band's album and he's from pennsylvania and he loves it so he's and so you know it's like it's always this like 
this kind of disconnect that happens whereby, you know, if it's mostly the politicians or the foreign policy that get, you know, has animosity to it. It's not ever the culture, the music, you know, the shows. It's never that. No, I, I completely agree. And I think more of those stories need to be told because pop culture is quite the unifying effect. But I want to ask you about your musical influences, though. You've already you've already you've already explicitly said that it was you two that captivated you. Anyone else in there? You two, like Bono from U2 or like Pearl Jam was I was a huge Pearl Jam, still am fan. Uh, I actually had a Pearl Jam debut album Ten and Verses and Vitology, all three of them in my cassette player in my car that I would drive to university in Pakistan, just like going crazy listening to it. And then this other band that I told you about, like my friend. Uh, from Pennsylvania is also into a band called Janoon and you know huge following. I've I've seen Janoon the band from 1991 to just uh, you know they came and did a reunion tour in Toronto and in 2019 I've seen them 60 times. 60. Oh, 60. That's uh, that's quite wow. I'm I'm friends with them on Facebook. I text nice. <laughs> like this that level of like craziness. Yeah. And I would also say, like, some of my other influences, you know, apart from, like, pop culture, like, media, I would say my dad, uh, as you know, as I mentioned, he's he's also in View Observe. He's also had quite the career. Uh, so I always look up to him because he knows how to adapt and pivot and take on new challenges. Well, Pearl Jam, I mean... I mean, it's good that you were not here 20, 30 years ago and a Pearl Jam fan. Do you know about the discrepancy between Pearl Jam and Ticketmaster in Canada? Did that story ever make it your way? Oh, yeah. Uh, I read about it. I read about it. Pakistan 995. They took on Ticketmaster because they're overcharging on not just tickets, but merchandising. And they took them to court. And that Pearl Jam actually tried to invent another system for their fans to get tickets. So I, I remember that. I actually saw Pearl Jam when I was in Purdue University. Uh, at a play, uh, drove two hours to a place called Deer Creek, Indiana. So I fulfilled my lifelong dream to see Pearl Jam live. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. It was amazing. Well, throughout the 90s and I'd say the early 2000s, you got closer to Pearl Jam than any other Canadian would have because apart from that whole, <laughs> well, apart from that whole disagreement they had, they kind of had this sort of unfair embargo against Canadians where it's like, we're not coming back to Canada until this is sorted out. But I digress a little bit. Tell mm. me about your first job. My dad was at the British Embassy. I was uh, three months away from, you know, my application had been accepted at Purdue University, so I had three months. And, you know, I thought I should probably get a job, but I'm going to do sitting here for three months. So my dad, uh, you know, said that, hey, we have an opening in the, the visa department of the British Embassy. Uh, so you could, you know, probably look into that. So I applied. Uh, and my job was to certify people's information, uh, work the window, you know, uh, at the end of the day when people would come pick up their passports. And I also assisted counselors uh, as a Hindi-Urdu translator in doing people who wanted a British visa. Uh, funny story, when I finished that and I was actually at the departure lounge of the Riyadh airport uh, waiting for my flight, this guy came up to me with his wife and just started, you know, yelling at me saying, I remember you, you interviewed me and signed off on my visa. And then he shows me his passport, and there's my beyond horrible signature on the <laughs> British visa because I, I have the worst signature. And I can just see it. And he was so he thought that it was me that had granted him a British visa to go like you know abroad and things like that. Although you know my part was very you know minimalistic in my opinion, but he was so happy. 
So he was like looking at you like you were the judge and jury of that. And the reason yeah. he was standing in that airport terminal was because of you. Yeah, yeah, literally, yeah. You should have said, well, you're welcome then. Enjoy your flight. I did. I did say, I said, and I hope you have a good trip and a good time there. You've mentioned a couple of times that uh, you finished and you did your studies at Purdue University in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, why Purdue? I had applied to actually three universities uh, from Pakistan, uh, and I got into all three of them. One was UT Austin. Uh, one, I believe, was uh, University of Denver, and then Purdue University. But Purdue were willing to take me a semester earlier, and I didn't want to waste any time. So literally, just without thinking, uh, I just decided, like, oh, I'm just, just going to go to Purdue. So that's kind of like how it happened. I had no idea what Indiana looked like. You know, when you grow up watching, you know, a lot of the mainstream movies uh, from Hollywood and sitting in Pakistan. So it was that shot in New York City, Chicago. And I land in Indiana. That too, like not even Indianapolis, like literally Purdue has its own airport that you can fly into because they have a huge aeronautical department. So I land in Chicago O'Hare Airport and then took this tiny 10-seater plane in a snowstorm and landed in Purdue University Airport. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that that was one hell of a flight, yeah. And it was after graduation, though, where essentially your media career would start. So talk to us about how your first role at a university, which turned into be your first media gig as well, landed you as a media associate at Starcom in Chicago. Basically, if you asked any of my friends, they would tell you that Saeed should, should have been a stand-up comedian. Like, that's the profession he should have gone. And I truly believe that that I would end up as like a copywriter and advertising agency because I've really been always been good with words and wordplay through observations or expressing life uh, mostly in a humorous way or in a very blunt manner to tell the truth. Uh, But again, as I told you, uh, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, November, 2001, one shy of graduating from Purdue university, you know, folks from Starcom uh, came to my campus at Purdue and were hiring aggressively and even willing to sponsor you know, work visas. So by this point, I already seen like F Leopard, <clears throat> U2, Pearl Jam, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, Kenny Min Shepherd, and a lot, a lot of live shows across India and Chicago. Uh, and I knew that these guys are never going to tour Pakistan, right? I'm like, this is it. So I literally had to shift my brain from the right hemisphere of creativity to the left side, which, you know, has got more to do with mathematics and analytics because I did not want to go back home to Pakistan and miss out on my true love and passion, music. That's the truth. I'm still here in North America, not because of the love of the profession of advertising or marketing or public relations or digital, social communications. I stayed because I knew I would have a better chance of seeing my favorite artists and musicians live in North America than any chance of them performing in Pakistan. So literally, I did it all for the music. So it was literally your passions. That's why you decided to stay. It was a pop culture that kept you in the United States. Yeah, yep. More or less, I would say that's true. As a side note, I want to say that Kenny Wayne Shepherd's cover of Voodoo Child is underrated. Oh my God. I saw that live. Believe it or not. I saw it oh. live in 1999. That guy is like a guitar god. Like he is mind blowing. He's, I mean, I don't know. I haven't been following him lately, but you know, his, his live playing and he would go off on tangents. Like he's just playing like a six minute solo. You're just losing himself in the music. Yeah, eyes, eyes closed, eyes closed. Not even watching his fingers, eyes closed. 
A lot of credit, though, should be given to the rhythm section for that because oh, oh, yeah. while he's doing that, the bassist and the uh, and uh, or the drummers, they've got to keep up with that. And they were watching him intently to make sure, okay, when's he going to go back to the melody, get out of his solo, we've got to roll into that. And all those guys have their cues, right? Like all those like big solo players, they have like either they'll do like a head shake or they'll like look around or do a tap. They have their signals, you know, like you can yeah. observe that. And they have to, they literally have to work it out ahead of time. Are they going to trade four bars versus eight bars when they go back and forth? It, yeah. it's, it's, rock music does not, and even jazz, especially jazz, oh, yeah. it does not yeah. get credit for being as difficult as it is. I went to an arts high school. I did music, was not good at it at all. You do not want me, you don't even want me playing the tambourine <laughs> in your band. And watching some of the jazz musicians who would have literally a single sheet of paper that would have some chords and the key signature on it, and they'd find a way to turn that into like 10 minutes of music with solos for everyone. Just one simple sheet, not like classical music where it's like 10 sheets and they're flipping on the stand, just one. Oh yeah, and I'm self-taught, right? Like when I play the piano, I can't read notes. I just hear and I can tell if you know the notes are going higher or if it's in a you know a minor chord or things like that, so I just like the Suzuki method. I think it's called. Mm. I'm, I I to, to this day I can't read music. So after Chicago, though, you moved to LA and you accepted a role with ACG Media. So what attracted you to the role with them, and did anything attract you to Los Angeles, or was it the role in general? My visa sponsorship and job didn't work out in Chicago at Starcom, and I had friends in LA who were willing to let me sleep on their couch. So I took a chance, literally. And to be honest, uh, I never really liked living in Los Angeles. I don't know. I've, I've never felt that disconnected from my surroundings ever. I don't know why. It's just, it just didn't click with me. Um, so, yeah, but I did get my work visa sorted there and <laughs> got the sponsorship. So did, did your work visa, was your work visa, help me understand them, uh, was it based on a specific location in the United States or did that kind of give you carte blanche to move around? Yeah. Like if you got a new opportunity elsewhere, say in Dallas, you could go there very easily or was there a bit of bureaucracy? That yeah, there is a bit of bureaucracy. It's a bit, so what happens is like, so for example, it's called an H-1B work visa. It basically is sponsored by your current job, but you can also get it transferred to another agency, right? If you're leaving an agency, for example, most of those H-1B work visas are like two to three years, or at least used to be. So I did one year in ACG Media. I still had two years left, right? So I basically told Moroc Partners where I moved to in Dallas, and they were you know, willing to you know, transfer the visa on their name. So that's how it all kind of worked out. You mentioned that L.A. wasn't for you, and I'm kind of surprised about that. Like the L.A. music scene, you, that wasn't seductive or anything? The music scene was great, and I saw a couple of shows over there. It was mostly, how should I say it without sounding too offensive, the Hollywood culture kind of sort of penetrates everything, uh, in my opinion, my sole opinion, uh, into the mindsets of the people. It's a lot of... I don't know. I can't describe it. I just didn't have the greatest time. Didn't, I mean, it was a good thing that I had my friends there, uh, but I didn't end up making any new friends, if that makes any sense. No, that, that does make sense. I completely see where you're coming from there. Okay, so from there you moved on to, Mor- is it Maroc or Maroc Media? Uh, now they call Maroc Partners. Uh, Maroc so, Partners. Yeah. And yeah. they're in Dallas. So, and you were working as the supervisor, as a supervisor print specialist. So what attracted you to Dallas? Basically, at ACG Media, uh, I worked on the JCPenney and Midas account, the Midas Auto account, and ACG Media actually lost the Midas account to Morocco Partners in Dallas. Uh, because I worked with the regional account managers from Morocco on Midas, 
and they really liked my work. Um, and so what they did was they recommended my credentials to senior leadership at Morocco to offer me a job to do the same function as I was doing in LA. Uh, so because they had won also won the print media business. So I literally just moved with the account to Morocco Partners. Um, and so they agreed and kept sponsoring my visa, like I said. I, that was a place I expanded my media expertise beyond print to broadcast. Uh, I also worked on unit in telecom, Dallas Fort Worth Airport, a uh, bit of McDonald's. Uh, and the friends I made at Morocco Partners are still my friend, uh, still my friends uh, almost, what, 15 years later. Uh, we still message and talk all the time. It was hands down my favorite agency in my career so far. Tell us a little bit about your time in Dallas, like going beyond what you were doing there at Morocco Partners, like a bit about the city. Did you enjoy yourself? How did it compare to L.A.? I would say the people were nicer in Dallas than in L.A., as I'd alluded to previously. It was uh, a great learning experience. Uh, my teams were great. Leadership was great. There was more like a family, really. Like it's a privately owned independent. So, you know, there's no they're not owned by like other companies or holding agencies or anything like that. So it was a great place to, you know, learn and people were really generous with their time, you know, making sure you're up to speed on things and the friendships. And also it was, uh, it's a great city. If you like, you know, food, <laughs> they have a great Tex-Mex uh, mix over there along with other things. And also there's a huge uh, Pakistani and Indian community in, you know, in Texas in general, not just in Dallas and also in Houston. So, and then coincidentally, uh, I actually ran into couple of my friends I used to be friends with in Pakistan had lost touch. Uh, so I ran to them there as well. So it was kind of like a reunion. So that, that's why I look back at that time as, you know, very fondly. So you'd say Dallas was kind of like this sort of unofficial, very <laughs> light homecoming for you. I mean, seeing your old yeah. friends again. It did have some frictions, obviously, you know, it's still, you know, Texas, you know, I'm sure you. Don't mess with Texas. Yeah, I know. So, you you know, you got to think about that aspect, too. But other than that, everything was pretty cool. So then what brought you to from Texas uh, to Toronto and Zenith? Three years into Morocco, I decided that I did not want to keep living in fear of what's next, you know, in terms of like sponsorships. Um, wow, as that's some, point. So you were really as, like you were literally working towards your expiration date, not knowing if this, exactly. hey, this is my last day before I have to go back home. Exactly. You know, and, you know, it wasn't like Morocco wouldn't be up to like sponsoring me, but I just had to fix that, you know, status problem in North America. You know, is this something were to happen to my job, a client left or they downsized, who would sponsor me, right? So, um, you know, so what I did was I applied for the skilled worker permanent residency program for Canada, you know, the path to becoming a resident of Canada, getting your PR. I landed in mid-March, 2006. Uh, before April 1st, I actually had two job offers. One, I took the one from Zenith Optimedia because uh, they offered me a, a better compensation. It was really that simple. I was a newcomer to Canada, didn't know anybody. I had an aunt uh, in Mississauga, but that was pretty much it. You know, in a new city with no credit rating, or standing, I needed that compensation and that start. So that's why I literally picked Zenith, to be quite honest. That must have been a, a scary time for you. But at the, at the same time, too, you had moved so many times, crossing the border into a new country and a new job and a new city. Do you think there was far less culture shock involved because you've done it so many times? When you live in different countries, you know, I mean, like I moved out of Pakistan at the age of four, right? And then traveling to Indiana and then living in Chicago and LA and Dallas, it wasn't such a big culture shock. Plus I'm moving to a country within North America, right? So no, I 
you know, it wasn't such a big cultural shock at all coming to Canada. Actually, let's, I want to step back and talk about your childhood really quickly because we're talking about all the different places you lived in. Because even though you were born in Pakistan, you moved and you moved to Saudi Arabia and you were educated there. I mean, looking back at your early years and your teen years, did you feel that you were a little bit more more Saudi Arabian or Pakistani? Like You know, when you live in any other country, you kind of also adapt and take in the good stuff, you know, from that part. So uh, I would say, you know, I love, you know, the food there, the culture, uh, but I also I'm a big, you know, I'm a Pakistani, that kind of, a, you know, like loyalty as well. Uh, so and then, you know, after that, you know, living in Chicago, you know, all these other places, I feel like I've just become kind of like a mix, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, well, I was brought up in the British standard. So you'll catch me sometimes. I'll say I can't no, or some, uh, catch myself saying it, you know, sometimes I'll say I can't. Well, I'll say I can't, <laughs> right? So I'll still, I'll still to this day put in my my date first, not the month. If I'm writing my birthday, I do I'll that go, too. I do that too. Yeah. You're saying so. It's like yeah. the 16th of April. Uh, yeah, I still call it signal. I don't say a stoplight, right? Because it has a go light and a caution light. That's why it's a signal, right? So it's these kind of things. And when you get behind the wheel of a car, do you think it's a little antiquated to be sitting on the left hand side and uh, yeah. driving on the yeah. right, which is the reverse? That, that took a while for me to learn, actually, because Pakistan, we drive on the other side, right? And it just it just was so, like, reversed, right? Everything was, like, on the other side. Or you on the left side, but you drive on this on the right side. Over there, you have the steering wheel on the right side, but you drive on the left side. So, you know, it took a bit of, uh, of – it was a bit of a learning curve, for sure. Well, at least look at this Look at it this way. The pedals don't change. It's not like all of a sudden – they, thank God they don't do that. God knows how many accidents would happen for newcomers getting into the car and going, yeah, that's the gas. Whoops. I know, but, you know, you got to understand that I mostly drove like stick shift cars. So then when I came to the U.S. as well, I could only afford a stick shift car initially. So my now my stick shift is not on, you know, in my left hand. Now my stick shift is on the right hand, right? So that adjustment, you know, kind of takes a bit of learning curve for sure. I drive stick as well. Um, my wife and I have a stick shift car and yeah, I'm with you on that. Like I've never, I've never done it with the left hand, but I imagine it would be like trying to sign, like, are you left-handed or right-handed? I am right-handed. So, I mean, it'd be, it'd be like someone saying to you, Saeed, sign your name with your left hand. And you're like, uh, yeah, exactly. okay. But Toronto, you didn't set down roots there just yet. You had an opportunity to relocate to, of all places, Dubai and to work for PhD. So take us through how that came about, how that opportunity came about and, and tell us what, not just what life was like in Dubai, but what media life was like and everything else. Yeah. I mean, there were multiple, multiple reasons. Uh, and you got to understand by the time I you know, came to Toronto, it had been almost like six, seven years that I'd been back home to Pakistan. So I was kind of like homesick. Um, and, you know, so I just, one day I just packed up and left in December, 2006, I want to say, uh, just wanted to rest and slow down. Um, so, you know, and so, but when I went back within two weeks, I started managing a rock band. I know not exactly, (laughs) not exactly slowing down, but it was a lot of fun. It wasn't, I wasn't interested in doing anything else. And I thought like, I'm done with advertising and media was, you know, was almost, I think 29 at the time. So having like a early midlife crisis to what's my place in the world? Am I supposed to be doing advertising and then enjoying music a lot? Um. But then my dad told me to go check out Dubai for a week um, and the advertising scene there. And he hooked me up with one of his friends with whom I could stay with while I was there. Uh, so before I left, I emailed around like 10 agencies and seven wanted to meet with me. 
And when I got there, I was blown away by the city, the 100 plus nationalities that reside there, the cosmopolitan culture, the food, the vibe. And I ended up getting uh, three offers from media agencies, and I chose PhD because I really like the people there and their clients. And the fact that their office was in Dubai Media City, where a lot of concerts took place. Again, music. Okay, so tell us what Dubai Music City is. Dubai Media City is uh, uh, basically, it's a place where a lot of like, not just the ad agencies are there, but a lot of like the media companies like CNN and publishers and all of them have this area kind of like right, right next to Dubai Marina. Uh, so it's basically in a, you know, a place where all the ad agencies are there, all the publishers are there, other media, TV stations, you know, radio. I mean, it's now expanded beyond that, but, you know, in other places too. But that was the idea behind Dubai Media City. So, uh, you know, so it's everybody crossing the street, were, you know, in the cafes, having lunch, you know, is from your industry. Ah, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Kind of like, I guess, what we, I mean, a, a very much more posh and amplified version of, I guess you could say, Spadina and King in Toronto, yeah, because that's yeah, kind yeah. of our media. But I wouldn't yeah. call that media city. That's more like just a media intersection. Yeah, that's true. That, that is we got a ways to go compared to Dubai. That's but, true. Your career continued to climb, though, in Dubai. You moved on from PhD, and then you made the jump to VP level, at Maxis's global office, like mm-hmm. take us through, take us through making the jump to uh, the VP level, because I would imagine this is a point in your career. Where you're like, OK, I'm no longer a player. I'm now the coach. I would say the biggest adjustment was and, you know, a larger expectation to delegate more work, but still be hands on to ensure client satisfaction. Uh, and then, you know, a lot more involvement and input into not just client strategy, but also your agency strategies for growth and revenue forecasting. So, you know, you feel more empowered and at the same time, terribly frightened and have anxiety. But I think that's a good thing uh, because I feel, you know, that's my opinion. If you are stressed and have anxiety, that means you really care, right? And want to do your best. You know, it also keeps you in check, you know, and stops you from becoming like an overconfident jerk. You know, that's kind of like where I, it just keeps me in check. When I'm unsure, you know what I'm, I've noticed? Like when I'm unsure, I try harder. And I feel like that's a good thing. You know what? That's a good way of putting it because, I mean, complacency is the downfall for anyone's career. I mean, yeah. once that starts, it's all downhill. So yeah, when you do have a bit of anxiety like that, it does force you to learn more and up your game because you always think your game isn't at the level that it needs to be. So you're always seeking continuous improvement. Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, that's what I believe in. From there, though, you moved back to Toronto, landing at Mindshare. Tell us the story about how you landed back at Mindshare. And then also give us a bit of insight into what you had to deal with getting back into the Canadian market, because even though you had been a VP in Dubai, it didn't seem like it. And you were working for you were working for the type of companies or the exact same companies that are are in Toronto and have offices here. It yeah. wasn't as easy as a transition as uh, it looked like it would be on paper. So well, I'll be honest. Um, basically, what happened was my wife got pregnant with our first child in uh, Feb 2011. And we wanted to come back to Canada because we had family and friends here. Uh, she actually went to school and high school here uh, and has more Can- Canadiana in her than me, you know, for lack of a better term. Of course, you know, our son was born almost six months old. You know, uh, he, he was six months old when I finally managed to get that job at Mindshare, which was also just a six-month contract. 
you know, after working in North America all my, you know, early career, like six in the U.S. and one in Canada, and being only gone for a few years, every agency when I came back, they told me I don't have the extremely coveted, apparently, Canadian experience. And I don't know whatever that means because yeah, majority what does brand, that mean? Yeah. I mean, majority of the brands that, you know, our industry works on, uh, like literally nine out of 10 times are from the U.S., right? And nine or 10 times, what are we doing? We are replicating U.S. plans and Canadianizing them. Somehow, like employers in Canada think that the advertising metrics are somehow maybe different in places like the UAE or people working there don't know how to effectively target different audiences. Uh, in Canada, they only account for like English and French audiences. In that part of the world, especially Dubai, which is like a hub for Fortune 500 clients deploying their comms to uh, roughly 22 countries across Middle East and North Africa, you have to account for multiple audiences multiple you know languages multiple dialects with a high degree of cultural understanding and nuances to achieve your objectives if anything i feel people who work there have a much 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 wider perspective that's you make a good point because if you look at people on linkedin who have got titles or positions in that part of the world usually at the very end of it, it will have the acronym emea which yeah. i mean it stands for europe middle east and africa and yeah. I think people geographically go look at that and go, okay, yeah, you got to manage it from somewhere, but you bring up a good point. It's not just managing it from Dubai. You're managing how many different languages? Like yeah, across French, Arabic, uh, Arabic with this dialects. Uh, people in Morocco speak you know, French and Arabic, even Tunisians, you know, yeah. English. Uh, you know, it's uh, – and imagine across, like literally starting from, you know, Oman and then going west all the way to like Morocco and north. And South. So imagine the, the media mix modeling of the targeting and the audiences and making sure nothing is, you know, come across wrong if you're targeting, you know, one country where it does work or another country where it does not work. Right. So it's I, I feel like it's much more complex. After Mindshare, you moved on to Mediacom. What brought you there? So, as I mentioned, you know, it was a contract position at, you know, uh, Mindshare. And it was coming to an end of all times in November 2012, right, 2012. Um, and I believe one of their major accounts was also in review. Starts with a U and ends with an R. So you can figure that out. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, th so there was a bit of a hiring freeze, right? Like it happens, and especially Q4. So one of the SVPs I worked with at Mindshare, um, she sent over my credentials to Mediacom. And they were looking for someone to work on Shell, Dairy Queen, and other accounts. Uh, and, you know, she endorsed my credentials. I interviewed there, uh, and I got the job. And the best thing was it was full-time. So it's kind of like how I I basically did a transfer from, like, one Group M company to another Group M company. Never mind, they also left Maxis in Dubai, which is also a Group M company. So you're basically making the rounds through Group M. You've got, you've got, you've basically got the holy trinity, I guess you could sort of say, on your resume for the most I know, part. Except yep. for Media Edge, except for Media Edge, right? <laughs> and, and Essence, because Essence just yeah. came over the border about a year ago as well. True. I, I found this, I found this role interesting in your LinkedIn profile when I was doing my due diligence for our chat, and it's Edelman. Now, when people think of Edelman, they think PR. It's one of the PR juggernauts in the world, but you were charged with leading paid media which I thought was interesting because that seems, well, that seems to run counter to public relations because public relations is all about infiltrating the system and going viral and all of this and just getting like, I don't know, hours and hours of, of earned media. So tell us what paid media is like in a company that 
seems to be focused more on earned media. Yeah, I know. Earned media meets paid media. Uh, I wanted to see what it would be like to put God and science in the same room together, right? An unstoppable force meets an, you know, an immovable object, if you may, right? Uh, but like, honestly, like, let's step back in time here for a minute. The reason why you have been seeing a lot of like traditional PR agencies, for lack of a better term, delving into the advertising or paid media side, especially in the digital social space since I would say 2012, 2013, is because Facebook took away the free lunch, right? One day this took away the free lunch after getting getting brands hooked on their platform. The free lunch is, of course, organic reach. I call Facebook and this is like literally the line I used to describe them back then, still do. Facebook is the greatest bait and switch ever, like ever. First, they launched a platform where brands could just have a company page and all their followers see the majority of their posts every time they posted. You may remember back in the day, Victor, in those days, like brands would literally have Facebook logos on their TV ads or or even have like the sign off like and like our page on Facebook and like us on Facebook. You remember oh, those signs? Site, I could tell you there was one major CPG company where when I was working at Astral Digital, like not the out-of-home company, when they were still had a digital assets, where I got a massive contract and it was all display advertising and what they wanted was more Facebook followers. And I thought it was I thought it was a little antiquated because the only way it would because it was supposed to drive back to their Facebook page. And the only way yeah. it would work is if if you were logged into Facebook in your browser and we tried it out, like we, we tried it out on a test page. I'm like, okay, let's see what happens if I am not logged into Facebook and I click on this big box ad unit and it just takes you to the Facebook landing page where you can sign up and become a member. And I'm looking exactly. at this going, they're in it. Like literally they're helping drive signups to Facebook. Like I think yeah. this was a time when most people were on Facebook. There were still some outliers who weren't on it yet, but I was like, my God, like you said, this was an incredible coup for Facebook. Exactly. I mean, just think about it. Like, so brands are spending millions and millions of dollars on ads and, you know, advertising Facebook for free, you know, uh, you know, they're spending their budgets advertising for Facebook, like sign up, you know, follow us. And, and this helped, you know, amass Facebook, like billions of audiences, right? Then what happened? Facebook goes public in 2012. And the first thing they do, kill organic reach and yep, bring it gone. down to six, six to 10%. They brought it down to six, 10%. And all of a sudden, brands now had to pay for ads to even reach their own followers, right? That's how a lot of people from media agencies all started working for, you know, PR agencies. Um, you know, so that's basically, you know, what kind of happened. And, you know, I saw the opportunity and, you know, decided to go for it. It was also an opportunity, like, you know, professionalize and kind of launch their, you know, paid media division, uh, successfully across Canada. But you will hardly come across a PR agency, Victor, that also does, besides digital and social, traditional TV print or out-of-home buys, right? And, you know, I can tell you that they have upped the game in the past couple of years from doing just simple, like, paid social work or sponsored content. And now the, the these agencies, the PR agencies, you know, or communications agencies do everything from, like, SEM, SEO, programmatic, native, you know, and on par you know, with the skill set of like, I would say, digital paid media agencies too. But what is one jarring difference between working in a digital agent, you know, like a pure like paid media agency versus a PR agency is like unlike media agencies that usually work more on endorsing a brand, PR agencies also employ paid media and digital strategies to defend a brand, right? Like ah, in a that's time, a good way of putting it. Yeah. So like in a time of crisis management, reputation management, that's one thing that, you know, the, you know, the 
the mainstream advertising agencies don't do, right? The, the best they can do in a time of crisis, like shut off the ads, right? But PR agencies can also like defend, right? They, they're, so you're endorsing and you're defending. Oh, jeez, A little bit of both. Yeah. So basically, if we look back at that, that point in your career, would you say that timing was key? Because had Facebook not made that change, the whole PR industry would not have thrown their weight into paid media. Yeah, I think that was a contributing factor, but also I feel a lot of the publishers, you know, news publishers, you know, losing subscribers because everything was going online and nobody wants to buy a newspaper or things like that. I think that also kind of forced, you know, I think that also gave birth to like, you know, the outbrains of the tabulas of the world, right? Like mm. uh, sponsored content and then sponsored content or like native ads, specifically, especially native ads, you know, that show up like content recommendation when you're reading an article, uh, you know, and then every time you click on it, Outbrain or Tabola plays a, a certain percentage back to the publishers. That's why those guys have stayed alive. So the, all this has also contributed to, right, because, you know, a PR agency could land like a great earned media article and say the Globe and Mail, but to like these native recommendation tools, they can actually seed it next to the New York Times, you know, or like other publishers. So I feel like that in, since 2011, 2012, the Facebook factor, and the downfall of like mainstream subscribers to, you know, holding a newspaper physically and then pivoting to digital also contributed to a lot of the paid strategies and ads, you know, planners coming into the PR agency. You know what it also killed too? And I'm leaning on my experience working with uh, movie clients. It killed the homepage takeover because it killed the oh, yeah. homepage because <laughs> yeah, no one's going to the homepage anymore. Yeah. Remember the homepage takeover? So yeah. Well, people had to, publishers had to adapt and make it run ROS. So wherever it it would become ad served and it ran wherever the traffic came from rather than just owning the homepage. So yeah, it's funny. It just kind of hit me that it changed that massive ad unit, which was a format that on my side of the business was a big moneymaker for us, I'd say in the early 2010s. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those times. I want to bring things full circle back to where you are at uh, Porter Novelli right now. Mm-hmm. So tell us, we, I mean, you get, at the beginning, you gave us a really, really good description of what you're doing there, but how did you find the job? Did it find you? Did you apply? Were you headhunted? Um, so I was consulting, you know, successfully for the first time uh, in 2018 after my last agency job and was actually working with an agency called Abacus in Toronto and even doing some work for my old agency, Morocco Partners in Dallas, uh, when two of my ex-colleagues actually from Edelman introduced me to the managing director of Poor Novelli, and he was looking to professionalize the digital capability for clients in Canada. And so after a few conversations with him and the leadership team, I came on as an integrated media consultant in September 2018. So at this point, I I had three different consulting gigs, and things started to really pick up at PN, uh, Poor Novelli, rapidly, with a lot of current clients that they had gravitating and responding quite positively. Uh, so it finally came to a point where after a few months at Port Novelli, uh, that consulting uh, that I was doing for them started taking up 80% of my time. So they saw the potential for di- digital work and you know also non-digital, like traditional media work and offered me a full-time gig in May 2019. And I've been here since, uh, since and it was two years <laughs> early this May as full-time. Well, congratulations on your anniversary. Thank you, sir. Okay, Saeed, this has been a fantastic talk. I'm really enjoying it. It is time for some rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? Oh, wow. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Okay. 
the campaign you are most proud of? Um, Sick Kids Foundation at Mindshare. What about that campaign are you particularly proud of? Like, give us a bit of insight into uh, what what it entailed. So it was, uh, you know, every year Sick Kid has a massive campaign for donations and, you know, driving those kind of campaigns. And I have a soft side for kids. I got two kids of my own. And uh, it was, it was to, for lack of a better way to say it, I wasn't pushing product or I wasn't pushing a service. I was pushing humanity, if that makes any sense. So that's no. why it's my favorite one. Your favorite movie? Kind of torn between the Royal Tenenbaums and What About Bob? But interestingly, they both feature Bill Murray. I just thought of that. He is quite the character. He's great. <laughs> Your favorite video game? Not a gamer, dude. Sorry. I grew up on Atari and Sega, though. Uh, but at some point, I, got, I just got more interested in music, as you may have observed. Oh, uh, oh, we talked you. quite. It's kind of funny. You know what you should do? All the places you've lived, you should put it on the back of a T-shirt and make it look like it's you on, <laughs> you're on tour. Because like, that's what the touring T-shirts are like. Band name on the front and where we're going on the back. So you've got like L.A., Dallas, uh, Dubai. I mean, throw I know. Yeah, in there. Karachi, Toronto. <laughs> you that's should. That's a great idea. That's get, a great you idea. You and your wife get matching T-shirts. <laughs> that's a great idea. I actually, I actually might want to do that. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Hmm. Either like Riz Ahmed or Owen Wilson. I once met Owen Wilson at a restaurant in Dallas and had like a 10-minute conversation with him. But, you know, thinking about it now, Owen might get like slammed for, you know, cultural appropriation or lack of representation. So let's just go with Riz. Haven't, okay. met, him, haven't met him yet, but, you know, maybe one day. You didn't get starstruck when you met Owen Wilson because I was at Jack Astor's at Young and Bloor um, with uh, some friends of mine a couple of years ago, and Mads Mikkelsen, who uh, was oh my in God. Mads Mikkelsen. Oh my who, God. Yeah, to anyone listening, he played he played the bad guy in Doctor Strange. He played uh, the antagonist in Casino Royale, who kept Hannibal. Hannibal. Hannibal, yes, Hannibal as well. Yeah, and yeah. and my friend went over and just made small talk with him really quickly. He just walked over. He was there with his family in like an Adidas track jacket. He was just very nonchalant. And he said, look, a fan of your work, fan of your brother's work, say hello. And then me, I was in the booth going, I can't do this. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, because he's the Bond villain in my favorite Bond movie. And I was just like, oh, oh my God. But, but you managed to get 10 minutes out of Owen Wilson's time. Yeah. Um, so honestly, I was just you know in a restaurant and – all of a sudden, I just see the restaurant was, you know, you had a, uh, it had like a main floor, but then, you know, downstairs, there was another eating area. Like, literally, you had to like go down, like literally below street level, right? And there was like the staircase and I was sitting right next to the staircase. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I just noticed Owen Wilson in like a simple, plain, full sleeve white shirt, not tucked in, jeans, slippers with some random dude, like not from Hollywood, just like coming down and just sat down, you know, uh, two seats away from me next to right where the restroom was. So I was like, and then he's like totally like not Hollywood, just chilling out with his friend. People are coming over to him, trying to talk to him. He's being nice. He's being gracious, taking pictures, anything. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be that guy. It's like going to go up to Old Wilson again, be, like be fanboy on him. Uh, even though like I'd seen, you know, all the Wes Anderson movies and, you know, big fan. So what happened was I went to the restroom and as I was coming out, I took, I turned right and I just literally just like looked right at him and he looked right at me and I just said, hi, Owen, literally. And he's like, hi. <laughs> and I, we shook hands and then I proceeded to tell him how much I love 
him in I loved him in you know Bottle Rocket, the first I think Wes Anderson movie with his brother also was in it. Uh, and then we started talk about other movies, and he was a really nice guy. Just like if I didn't, if he wasn't like a movie star, it was he would just like it was like having a, a very regular conversation. But yeah, he was he was great. So my follow up question: If Hollywood were to make that movie about your life story, what would you call it? I'd probably call it Adventures of a Disillusioned Immigrant. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. That's and deep, would, right? Oh, it's very deep, and you'd have to stagger it with chapters as well. Kind of oh, like yeah. how, kind of like how Zack Snyder uh, staggered yeah, yeah. his justice, his recent his Justice League movie with different yeah. chapters. Totally, that's a great idea. You're giving me really good ideas. First, the T-shirt. Now, this. This is good. There was. There we go. We got it. Okay. Uh, save me a T-shirt, though. I will. I will for sure. Your favorite book? Kind of torn between Life of Pi and The Alchemist. Um, also, like Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, but I would go with Life of Pi by Jan Martel. This next question hits right to the heart of your passion. Mm-hmm. You either you're probably going to have the answer on the spot, or it was something that you really struggled with, and that is, what is your favorite song? It's No Good by Depeche Mode. Been listening to it ever since I bought the cassette back in 1997 or 96. It's the one song that has stayed with me throughout my life. Like I could be sad. I could be happy. Uh, actually, I play this song uh, before I actually do interviews. You know, if I'm interviewing for a job, if I want to get pumped up. Uh, so it's actually one of the songs that uh, it also makes me sort of like get like going and get my rhythm going. So yeah, I would say It's No Good by Depeche Mode from their album Ultra. The best advice you have ever received? I'd say two that I really gravitate towards. One is there's a time when you put your head down and a time when you put your foot down. Um, (laughs) And second is actually an advice that my teacher in marketing uh, told us in a class back in 1996, 97. I was in advertising class and he said, creativity is the fine art of hiding your influences very well. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken, right? Hmm. I like that one. I like that very much. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Either a stand-up comedian or a music producer, or maybe both, you know, a comedic producer of music. Like, just keep cracking jokes while people are trying to re- do recording sessions. Like, no artist or band would probably take me seriously. Or you could find a way to do both separately and then win Grammys in two different completely separate categories. Like Beyonce can't even pull that off. And she usually, what, cleans up when she's uh, nominated? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Man, you're giving me a lot of good tips right now. Like this, a lot. This is number three. I'm yeah. literally helping you write the next act of your life. Yes, that's why you're going to end up in my book as well. You know, Adventures of a Dissolution. I'm going to have a chapter, just, you know, chapter just dedicated to Victor. Just to Victor and a t-shirt. Don't forget the t-shirt. Will not forget the t-shirt. Saeed, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Victor. It has been a pleasure. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at VicGenova.